there, one and all, and welcome to the very first episode of That Sounds Like Fun, a podcast all about the magic of video game music and how it makes us feel. I'm Ross Alexander. This pilot episode is a personal project that represents 18 months or more of work. I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you, and if you're hearing this, I appreciate you giving the show a shot. If you already love game music, I hope that maybe you learn something new from this episode, or at least you get to listen to some great tunes that you might not have known about otherwise. If you love games but have never really stopped to consider the music, then maybe this will encourage you to listen to some game music all on its own, without the distractions of things like crazed apes, groups of gun-toting thugs, or that damned blue shell. This pilot episode is a bit different from the format I'm eventually hoping for, as the plan is to invite friends who love game music onto the show, so that we can discuss our favourite music and composers. Some of these friends are actually in the business of making games, and I'm hoping to be able to gain some viable insight into the process of making games music. But for this episode, you're stuck with me. I'm just a long-time fan of game music who has had an idea for a podcast in my head for about a year and a half. I wanted my first episode to cover the history of music and games from its humble origins to the modern day. So let's start with the big question that I'm hoping to answer not only for myself but also to get my friends and other crew members to answer, which is why we love music and video games. While frequently overlooked by casual fans, game music has the power to set a scene, create tension and prepare players for what's around the corner and an entertainment medium that seeks to enrapture players and pull them into our world, music plays a massive part in the overall experience. It's important to see where this medium started and how far it's come. Of course, as with music of pretty much any kind, it's designed to evoke a particular feeling in whoever is listening to it, and game soundtracks are no different, be it the Russian excitement of Nate's theme from the Uncharted series, written by Greg Edmondson, which you would have heard at the top of the show, or the heavy metal fueled aggression of Robert Prince's 1993 At Doom's Gate, or indeed any of the original Doom soundtrack, or the childlike glee that can be evoked from Green Greens from Kirby's Dreamland, written by Jun Ishikawa. I'm going to play you a little bit of At Doom's Gate and Green Greens, and you can think about just the different feelings that they were obviously trying to go for. They're very, very different pieces of music.
any sonic whiplash I may have caused there, but I just could not resist the urge of putting those two very different tracks next to each other. Anyway, in this episode we will cover the music of digital games, beginning at the ominous and relentless Space Invaders theme, and ending at the grandiose orchestral scores of modern games such as Skyrim, the Final Fantasy series, and Halo. We will also uncover the depth that video game music has penetrated modern culture, from the ubiquitous and catchy theme of Tetris that inspired its own pop cover, to the live concerts of game music that sell out massive arenas. So let's start right at the beginning, and let's talk about sound and music in early video games. As video game design started, music was actually something of an afterthought, with the limitations of the available technology making it very difficult and time-consuming to score a game, or as close to they could score back then. Sound was originally programmed into games by hand, meaning games were often scored by programmers who had the time or patience to input audio. This included both music and sound effects. The Space Invaders, from 1978, featured the first continuous background soundtrack to a game, made up by four descending chromatic bass notes. Before this, games had only featured quote-unquote music as introductions and game-over themes. Here's a little bit of the now very famous Space Invaders music. Utterly terrifying. Fun fact about me, actually. Uh, Space Invaders is one of the first games I can ever remember playing. I remember that I found my uncle's old Atari 2600 in the attic. and It was the first time I'd ever played video games. And it was either Space Invaders or Centipede that was my very first video game. So I have some very strong memories of nervously hammering the button while that music sped up. Obviously, very, very basic back then, but it's definitely stuck with me, and I'm sure that there are a lot of other gamers who will fondly, I guess, remember those sounds, even if at the time they were pretty nerve-wracking. Anyway, in the early 80s, computers only supported a handful of audio channels that could be played at once. This meant that if a game's sound effects were playing at the same frequency as the music channel, that piece of music would stop playing as soon as the sound effect was required. In 1981, Nintendo's Donkey Kong hit the arcade, showcasing the musical talents of Yukio Kaneoka. While most people remember Donkey Kong for being the hit that introduced the world to Shigeru Miyamoto and Mario's very first prototype known as Jumpman, the music for Donkey Kong is everything a score could be at the time. Catchy, repetitive and most of all, simple. Here's a little bit of it now. Another stone-cold classic from the arcade days of old. 
that track is so catchy and repetitive that you just know that after a day of spending all your money playing Donkey Kong that that track is going to be stuck in your head for the whole day moving on the introduction of frequency modulation synthesis or FM synthesis as it was called was allowing developers to manipulate tones to have different characteristics instead of being limited by the design of the chip in the computer at the time with the 16-bit era improved FM synthesis and an increase in the number of audio channels a game could utilize was leading to a distinctive sound that was beginning to sound a lot more like conventional music, such as Yuzo Koshiro's soundtracks to Streets of Rage. So here's a little bit of Go Straight by Yuzo Koshiro from Streets of Rage Volume 2 soundtrack. the Streets of Rage soundtracks are not really my bag it's undeniable that that music was ahead of its time. That piece of music was actually from 1993 and it could very easily have been a club hit that year in fact it could even still be sampled today and undoubtedly is Yuzo Koshiro was one of the first composers to actually be given credits in the title scenes and that piece of music is generally held as being way ahead of its time that's largely due to what the Genesis, or the Mega Drive as it was called in the UK, was able to do. By the late 80s, many of the big names in classic video game composition were just beginning their careers in the games industry. Composers such as Nobuo Uematsu, Koji Kondo and Hiroshi Kawaguchi of Hang On and Outrun fame were all making music at this time, which is still looked back on fondly. These are names that will definitely reappear in this podcast. At this stage, it's almost compulsory to mention one of the most enduring, catchy earworms of a theme tune to have ever existed, Tetris. While the original Tetris came out in 1984, it was at a time when Russia closely guarded any resources, including elements of their culture. It wasn't until 1989 when Tetris came to the Nintendo Game Boy that mainstream Western audiences would hear the classic Tetris Theme A which is actually based on a Russian folk song called Korebeniki. I'm going to play a short medley for you, containing the familiar Tetris theme, the dance music cover version, and an orchestral rendition of the original folk song. And just a warning guys, this one's an earworm.
apologies for getting that stuck in your head, folks. You were warned, though. I chose this piece as an example of how game music both informs and is informed by the culture surrounding it. The original folk song was actually created in the mid-19th century, so it was already over a 100 years old by the time Tetris came around. The popularity of the game reinvigorated the catchy tune, and Dr. Spin's cover is far from the only piece of popular music to take inspiration from what we might know as Tetris Theme A. When researching for this podcast, I actually fell down some very weird rabbit holes. If you search on YouTube for Dr. Spin's Tetris, there are some very interesting videos, including people dancing on top of the pops with costumes made from Tetris blocks. Here's a bit of trivia as well, actually. Dr. Spin was the pseudonym that famous composer Andrew Lloyd Webber used to produce the single. Also, a piece of advice for any American listeners. Be careful if listening to Korobinyiki. I got distracted and ended up spending upwards of 30 minutes listening to the Red Army Choir at high volume. I had my windows open pretty wide and any passing neighbours probably thought that I was planning a revolution. But I digress, comrades. As well as the games industry moving forward with digitally created music, sampling was becoming a powerful tool for creating game soundtracks throughout the 80s. In 1986, Electronic Arts released the Deluxe Music Construction Set for the Amiga and Apple Mac platforms. This set was available alongside a freeware program for the Amiga called the Ultimate Sound Tracker, which allowed users to create their own music based on digitised samples. This early version of Sound Tracker still limited the number of samples in a song to 15, splitting the tracks into melody, accompaniment, bass and percussion. As the 80s turned into the 90s, sampling became ever more prominent, with more memory and channels becoming available, music like the incredibly catchy and diverse Street Fighter 2 soundtrack came to be. Here's a piece of music that I've heard more times than I can count. Wanting something inspiring to wake up to, I chose one of the most famous video game tracks of the 90s to be my alarm clock for a long time. This is Guile's theme from Street Fighter 2 by Yoko Shimomura. Fans of game music will also likely know Yoko Shimomura for her work on the soundtrack for Kingdom Hearts, a series that is known for its score. She left Square in 2002, but is credited for music in Kingdom Hearts' many sequels and spin-offs. She has also worked extensively with Nintendo and helped to create the score for Final Fantasy XV. So we've spoken a little bit about the technological advances that were helping the music in the games industry. But let's think a little bit more about the cultural changes that were happening. 
For this, let's go to Tokyo in August of 1987. Koichi Sugiyama is presenting the first ever concert of video game music in the form of the Family Classic Concert, which included his music from the Dragon Quest series. It was so successful that he has gone on to present concerts of his work a further 17 times. Later on, we will discuss how live performances of game music have gone on to become massive world touring events. Sugiyama is worthy of special note here, as he was the first game composer to record his game's music with a live orchestra. In 1986, he released Dragon Quest I Symphonic Suite, featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra. This music is often credited as the inspiration for the composers of the Japanese RPG genre that came after it. Of course, the technology at the time meant that his compositions and game were limited by the computers that they were played on. Here is one of the eight pieces of music written for the original Dragon Quest, called People. find it amazing to hear music like that was being composed for video games before I was even born. It sounds as contemporary as any other piece of classical games music today. That's one of the strengths of an orchestral score. They have a timeless quality that lends themselves well to a medium that is inherently based in the technology of its time. Sadly, the costs of hiring a composer and orchestra are still an issue for small studios and orchestral scores took quite a while to become commonplace in the games industry. Despite the relative rarity of using orchestras to score video games in the 80s and early 90s, it's telling that audiences were still willing to pay to attend concerts featuring a game's composition. To see a culture as sophisticated and nuanced as Japan's attending a concert of games music, it is a true sign that game music was beginning to be taken more seriously as an art form. Of course, Sugiyama's status as a celebrity in Japan helped. During the late 1970s and early 1980s, Sugiyama composed for musicals, commercials, animated movies and television shows, such as the incredibly titled Science Ninja Team Gatchaman The Movie and Cyborg 009. So, by the end of the early 90s and the peak of the cartridge-based console format such as SNES and Mega Drive, Games music had its dedicated fan base, who recognised it as more than just beeps and boops. Of course, the music was only one aspect of games that was limited by the scarcity and cost of solid-state memory at the time. While the Sega CD and the PC were beginning to show what could be done, it would take a new console developer to really blow the lid off what music and games could be. In a hint of what's to come, In 1986, Nintendo had released the Famicom Disk System for the Famicom. It never makes it to the West, 
but it's a small indicator of the coming CD revolution. While the Sega Saturn arrived on the scene first in 1994, a slightly iffy Japanese launch and a car crash of a Western launch meant that despite its CD-ROM technology, it was left behind by Sony's first step into the console market, the PlayStation. A project initially designed for Nintendo, Sony decided to carve out their market share after their business deal with Nintendo turned sour. Released almost despite Nintendo, the PlayStation would be a major player in redefining games music. The PlayStation was CD-ROM based gaming's first real success story, and with its popularity came the technical advantages of the increased storage that CDs afforded over cartridges. As well as this, CDs were much cheaper to create than cartridges, and despite some fairly widespread piracy issues, it seemed that CD-ROM was here to stay. It's very tricky for me to pick just a handful of tracks to play from this era, as it forms my personal golden age of video games. While I'd owned an Atari 2600 and a Master System, the PlayStation represented the cutting edge of gaming, and now instead of playing games that were a few years old at least... I could play brand new games that all my friends at school were talking about. I guess a sensible place to start is with the first ever game to have its in-game score performed by an orchestra, Amazing Studios' 1998 game Heart of Darkness. The score was composed by Bruce Broughton, who by this time had scored movies such as Silverado, Harry and the Hendersons and the Homeward Bound movies. Heart of Darkness may have faded into relative obscurity in the last 20 or so years, but the concept of hiring an orchestra to record a game's score is now almost a given when it comes to AAA game development. Here's some of Andy's mission from the Heart of Darkness soundtrack. That really is such a charming and playful soundtrack. It always reminds me of Chuck Jones cartoons, with little influences from the greats like John Williams. Even if you don't have an old copy of the game in your attic, I really recommend listening to the soundtrack. It makes for a great light-hearted Halloween listen. That score also shows that in-game music can now sound much like its digitally recorded live orchestral track, This allowed game music to stand toe-to-toe with the great movie compositions of the day. One of modern-day cinema's most prolific and successful composers, Michael Giacchino, has been writing music for games since the 16-bit era, and his orchestral compositions from the era of the original PlayStation include a few movie tie-ins such as Small Soldiers and Jurassic Park The Lost World. But the score he wrote for the 1999 first-person shooter Medal of Honor is just as inspiring today as it was the first time I heard it. Here is the main theme from Medal of Honor, 
a track that I still listen to regularly. most people, it probably makes sense that a Hollywood film composer would be creating music for video game tie-ins for movies. But the fact that DreamWorks Interactive and EA were willing to hire an established film composer shows that game studios were trying to create a more cinematic gaming experience. Luckily for us, they didn't overlook that an impressive score was a big part of the movie magic. It was during the late 90s that orchestral and choral soundtracks really hit their stride, with Michael Honig's incredible score to Baldur's Gate cementing the RPG as the home of grand sweeping scores. While scores like this have become a bit more ubiquitous these days, the RPG remains the home of the incredible orchestral music. Here's a taste of the main theme to Baldur's Gate. this day, that track is one of my favourite examples of how adding a choral layer to an orchestral track can take something impressive and make it truly awe-inspiring. The fact that studios were starting to one-up each other with orchestras and choirs was a sure sign that the only thing holding them back now was money. Game music could sound however a studio wanted it to, for a price. Of course, the CD revolution brought forward all sorts of different musical genres, which have now become mainstays of the gaming experience. Cygnosis's Wipeout 2097 took advantage of the growing passion for house and techno music and made it a massive part of the game. The game's developers knew their audience and were savvy in selecting the music they put into their games, especially now that it could be CD quality music. Artists such as The Prodigy, Orbital and the Chemical Brothers all featured on the PlayStation 1 version of the game. It's hard to imagine sliding around those racetracks to anything else. In the early 2000s, the use of a score to create a soundscape became an increasingly popular tool in the game designer's arsenal. Jesper Kidd's soundtracks for the early Hitman games made extensive use of orchestras, choirs and techno sampling to create a soundscape that reflected the aesthetic of the game's surroundings. 
The use of soundscapes has become so ubiquitous in the modern gaming space that it's difficult to think of games without them. It's such an integral part of game design that it probably warrants an episode of its own. Of course, nowadays, video games are not solely the domain of the stereotypical nerd. Parents who grew up with games don't have the same hang-ups regarding letting their kids play games, and this means that games are more popular than ever. This rising acceptance has been a steady progression, with games and popular culture crossing over directly on many occasions, especially in terms of music. If you play any variation of the classic Mario theme to most people, they will at least be able to identify that it's from a video game, even if they can only say it's the one with the wee jumping man in it. One sign of the rising tide of video game music is the popularity of live concerts such as Video Games Live, which tours the world and sells out incredibly quickly. Started by noted games composers Tommy Tallarico and Jack Wall, VGL has done a lot to raise the profile of game music in classical music circles, and despite its somewhat over-the-top nature, it shows like this that are helping game composers get the widespread recognition that they deserve. The VGL version of the Halo Suite is an incredible experience, and something that I got to witness firsthand when I saw it back in 2008. That's a theme that really benefits from the electric guitar. Here's a little bit of it now. the biggest fan of the Halo series but that piece of music is so awesome and I still have very vivid memories of playing the game whenever I hear it. In 2003 German composer Thomas Bocker arranged the Symphonic Game Music Concert which was successful enough to become an annual event as well as performing special showcases for specific musicians and franchises such as Nobuo Umatsu's Final Fantasy scores and the music of Nintendo. Amazingly, the world of classical music has also acknowledged the accompaniments of game music. The British institution, Classic FM, has featured many pieces of game music in their top 300 lists, and Uematsu's Final Fantasy scores, as well as Jeremy Sewell's Elder Scrolls series, still feature in their top 50. While game music no longer has a distinct sound, it is more widespread than ever. The topics and audiences that games cover have expanded exponentially in the last 40 years or so, 
With today's diversity of available game titles, game music has adapted to fill every niche available. From Shovel Knight's retro-style chiptune soundtrack to Journey's haunting orchestral score, it's undeniable that music in games is more diverse than ever, and that much like art style or character design, musical score must be carefully considered when making your game. It may seem as if I have forgotten to mention the last 20 to 15 years, but frankly, this is due to the fact that game music has diversified so much in the last two decades that while the limitations surrounding game music have been removed, the major changes to game music have been cultural. As the composers push forward with their craft, we find that each different facet of games music is deserving of its own episode. So that's episode one. I hope that you've enjoyed it, and you'll come back for episode two. As I said at the top of the show, this format isn't strictly what I'm planning on sticking to, but I hope that by telling you all about how games music has evolved, we can better understand how things look for the future and put everything in a bit of context. In coming episodes, I hope to discuss the rise of chiptune music, dive a little deeper into the careers of my favourite composers such as Nobuo Umatsu, Jeremy Sewell and Koji Kondo, and I hope to have some interesting people on the show to discuss their favourite music from the world of video games. If you have any comments or questions about the show, you can find me at That Sounds Like Fun on Facebook, Mr. Roaster on Twitter, or you can email me at That Sounds Like Fun Pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to sign off now with one of my favourite tracks from the game Journey, which I think has one of the best soundtracks out there despite being a relatively small independent game. This is Final Confluence from Journey. <laughs>